so Steve was saying, rightly so, that we don't really broach this topic very often on giving and, finance and so, finances and so forth for the reasons he already mentioned, um, which are certainly true things. But uh, <clears throat> excuse me, as I um, was going through the scriptures, it wasn't really a surprise to know that the scriptures talk about finances and giving and money a lot. Um, I think we all sort of recognize that, but the thing that stood out to me is just how, um, how it permeates really the entire canon. You know, as you go through and look at the Old and New Testament, it's just everywhere. Um, sometimes I'll read these um, biblical theology monographs in a series, and most of the time they're really good. Um, sometimes you get one where you're like, well, the person chose a theme, and they're kind of shoehorning a few texts in there sometimes, you know. And as I was going through sort of a biblical theology, my own studies of looking how the Bible from Genesis to Revelation sort of covers finances and, and money and so forth, it's not like that. It's not like you're having to shoehorn anything. Things just pop out of the text, you know. These are on the surface, you know. You're not having to really dig them out. They're just, they're there, you know. Um, they're playing. They're on the surface of things. So um, one text I was thinking about as Steve was talking um, is in Acts chapter 20 uh, when Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders there and he's, you know, he's giving this final sort of speech to them and saying how um, they will never see his face again and so forth and they're very upset about that. One thing he says is that he did not shrink from declaring to them anything that was prof- profitable. Um, and then later on down we know um, the text where he says that he he taught them the entire counsel or purpose of God. He didn't withhold anything that God has in the scriptures from them. Anything that's profitable, anything that God had to tell them, he had to tell them. And so God has things to tell us about this topic of, of giving and money, uh, specifically giving, that's what we're gonna focus on. Um, so we need to look at these things, obviously. And if you're like me, if I was shoe on the other foot, sitting there in the, we don't have pews, let's just say pew, in the chairs, um, I would be maybe thinking, oh man, this is going to be, what is this going to be? <laughs> this is going to be challenging. And, you know, what, how, am I, how am I going to process all this? Well, I just want you to do what, the, as Steve was, was praying, whatever the Lord needs to do in you, whether it's admonish, encourage, whatever, let all that happen. But I think overall, as you look through, through the scriptures, the, motiv- the motivation for giving is not a guilt trip. Um, <laughs> my brother used to say sometimes, um, that my mom would start on a certain train of thought. He'd say, pack your bags, we're going on a guilt trip, you know? Uh, get ready. Uh, no offense, mom, if you listen to this. But um, that's really uh, not the, the main mode of operation in the scriptures. I mean, there's, Jesus has some really pointed things to say about money, obviously, and, and our relation to it, as do the apostles, as does the Old Testament. And we need to take those things to heart. But I think the overall, uh, the overall goading is not, uh, is not, negative in nature, but positive, what good can come from giving, what the Lord can do. And so, um, yeah, we want to just keep that in mind, uh, that there's, there is a, a huge benefit <laughs> to the kingdom of heaven, um, and so many things, when we look at this, this topic. So, why don't we pray again just very briefly, and then we'll start going through some, some things in the text. Well, Lord, as we open your word this morning. We certainly seek to know what you have to tell us. Um, I don't have anything creative to offer here, nor should I, Lord. It's, it's your word that, that is true and stands the test of time because it is from your mouth, Lord, and we want to tremble before it and be changed by it, and we ask you to uh, give us a spirit of humility um, before your word and 
to know that whatever you say, it's for our good, and that even when things are hard, um, hard words, those are for our good, Lord. Um, if we um, didn't have your word, didn't have those hard things, that would be the worst thing for us, Lord. Um, when you come to us and you tell us whatever you have to tell us, Lord, it's always for the sake of your glory and for the sake of your, uh, for our good as your people um, and for the good of the world, Lord. And so we ask you to open our hearts, open our minds to your scriptures and give me clarity of speech as Steve was praying, Lord. I certainly am tired this morning, Lord, but you can override all of that and just uh, speak to us through your text, through your scriptures this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so I definitely will not finish this morning. Um, I can tell you that right now. Um, So I didn't plan on finishing, but I'm not going to. But here's my outline, if you want to know the big picture outline of of what we're looking at. So I essentially structured everything about around five five questions uh, in relation to giving. The first question is what we're going to talk about this morning, and I think it's the most important of all the questions, and that is, why do we give? It's a pretty basic question, right? Um, It's kind of important to get that all ironed out in our minds before we actually do give, or, you know, I know we're already giving, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, it's, it makes sense that that would come first, logically. Um, the second thing we'll look at, not this week, but next week, is in what manner should you give, or what should your attitude be when you're giving? There's stuff, uh, in the, things in the scriptures that touch on those two related topics. Thirdly, um, to whom or for what should you give? Um, Not everything is worthy of giving to, or not every person is equally valid as a recipient of money that comes from believers, right? So um, the scriptures speak to that. Um, Fourth question is, how much should you give? Um, Obviously a very pertinent question. And then lastly, how often should you give? Um, Will be the last question we'll look at. So we're going to, this morning, focus on the first question, why should you give? Um, and I have, I don't know, like eight or nine different reasons. <laughs> I'm sure there are others that could be mentioned. They could be rearranged, but these are just my reasons. So I think they pretty much capture the sense of, of why from the scriptures. Um, so let's start by looking at <clears throat> Matthew chapter six. If you want to turn there. Now, some texts I'll be uh, in a little bit longer than others. Some are just kind of quick, but um, you know, we'll turn to Matthew six to start with. And a lot of these passages, as we go through and look at these different questions, we'll sort of circle around to again. So um, I might spend a little bit more time uh, you know, later on on some of these than I will this morning to bring out different points. But in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is, of course, teaching his disciples. And he says this in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have... You have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say say to you that they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So there are lots of different points we could draw out of that text, and we will, but the main point I want to draw out of the text, just to start with, on the top, on the question of why should you give, is because Jesus lays it out there as an expectation. He doesn't, it's not so much a command in this text, is it? Do you see a command? There's no command. It's just an assumption. Well, when you give, do it this way. He's not telling them to give. He's just saying, when you are doing your giving, this is the manner in which it should be done. Now, of course, this is not surprising because 
These are Jewish people. They're used to the Old Testament. And again, the Old Testament has lots to say about giving, of course. Giving to the poor uh, of the land, giving to the oppressed, giving to the, the widows and the orphans, giving to the, the Levitical priests so that they could you know, help with the worship uh, of Israel, uh, facilitate that worship. So um, they're used to this. Jesus didn't have to tell them, by the way, guys, you should be giving. <laughs> it's not a new thing is the point. Um, so it's just an expectation on the lips of Jesus here. No command is stated. Um, sorry, let me switch over to my other outline here. So that's, that's the first, first text. And we'll come back to that text later to draw, draw out some more things. But firstly, just notice it's just an assumption on the lips of Jesus. The second text I want us to look at is um, Luke chapter 6, 37 through 38. Now I'll just read this as a Obviously, a brief text. You don't have to turn there necessarily. But Jesus says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will <clears throat> be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So again, this is another passage we'll come back to a little bit later to kind of add a little bit more to the whole, you know, in our minds as far as giving, add, add to that whole uh, idea. But for now, notice that it's, it is a stated command here. It's an imperative. Give, right? It's more than just an ex- expectation, kind of latent. It's an actual command. Give and it will be given to you. Um, and notice that when it says, they will pour into your lap, it's probably a, a roundabout way of talking about God. Uh, you, not- you noticed in the previous text in Matthew that Jesus says that when you give... It's not that you're actually just giving it away and that's, that's it, the end, full stop. He says, you're gonna get a reward from your father, right? It's not just, that's it, it's the end of it, give and it's gone. It's, as Jesus will say, and we'll look at later, it's, it's to store up treasures in heaven. There's an ultimacy to this giving, right? There's a looking past the immediate situation into the future and God will reward you for that. There's a similar thing going on here, and not to get too much into it because we'll look at it later, but this idea of give and it will be given to you. Um, there's this idea in the Greco-Roman world of reciprocity. It's a kind of a, I scratch your back and you, know, you scratch my back kind of thing, back and forth, tit for tat sort of thing that was common in the Greco-Roman world. And the scriptures, the New Testament, is really counter-cultural in this, in this respect because what does Jesus say? He says, don't just give to those who can give back to you, right? Well, that was in the face of the, the times and the culture of the time, that's not the way it worked. <laughs> Usually people would give for the time, you know, okay, you need something, I'll, I'll loan you some money, but it was expected you would give back to that person in some form or fashion, right, in the future. And that's not Jesus' point here. The giving, uh, when you give to anything, whatever it is that's, you know, that's a legitimate need or reason that we should be giving in the New Testament, it's not so much that it's for the, the, uh, the benefit of getting something back from others that you just gave to, although that, that can happen. It's that God will be the one to make sure that there's reciprocity. You see what I'm saying? God will be the one who gives back to you. Which, I mean, I'd rather receive from God than from men, right? God can give way more than any man can give me, right? So um, there's this sort of countercultural thing going on with giving um, where it's not a tit for tat, a I scratch your back, you scratch my back sort of thing going on. God is the ultimate giver. But again, this is, again, a command from Jesus. Give, and it will be given to you. Um, third text, and you can turn over here if you want to. It's just a little bit longer. Luke chapter 12, 
looking at verse 13. And we're going to cover quite a few scriptures going through, so just, you know, (laughs) have your fingers ready, whether you're swiping or flipping. All right, so Jesus says, someone in the, rather, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to him, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now again, another text we'll come back to later and say more about, for, but for right now, notice that the, the general sense of things in Jesus' mind concerning his disciples is that there are to be people who are not storing up treasures for themselves, but are rather to be rich toward God, which is a latent command, isn't it? It's a command to be rich toward God. That's the assumption in the whole parable that Jesus teaches. His followers are to take what God gives to us and not just spend it on all our pleasure so that, so that we just, you know, focus on ourselves entirely. Not to say that spending on pleasure is a bad thing. I'll say more about that later. But that's not the, that's not the only or certainly not the ultimate reason that God gives us anything, right? Certainly God gives to, gives to us so that we can um, have our needs met and so forth. But he wants us to not, as Paul says, not just look out for our own interests, but the interests of others as well. And when we, when we look out for others' interests, we are being rich toward God to the degree that we provide for the needs of others. That is being rich toward God. Think about it. What can we ever give to God that God doesn't already have? He has everything, right? As one person has said, you know, about in the Psalm, uh, God has the cattle on a thousand hills. But it's, the point's not, well, the, the thousand and first cow is not God's. No, it's, he has all the cows, right? Every single one is him. And this is in the context of sacrificial language, you know, of, oh, you know, we offer these bulls, these cows to God. He doesn't need any sacrifices, as, in he's, as if he's in want of anything. Of course not. But when we give to others who are in need and give to um, legitimate kingdom of heaven issues and good works, those are ways in which we can be rich toward God because God has a heart for those things, doesn't he? And the very reason that he's given us the things that we have is not just to spend on ourselves as an end in itself, but also to the degree that we have surplus to then give to others as well, right? Uh, So that's sort of the first point to be made. Giving is either expected or explicitly stated as a command. Clear enough, right? We all know this, but I just wanted to put that out there in the text to see this is This is not an optional thing, right? It's not optional. It's something that we should all be doing as Christians. Next point, giving is necessary. Now, you might be thinking, okay, like what? (laughs) What is this? This is like very obvious, right? If if the first one wasn't obvious enough, this one's super obvious. Giving's necessary, right? Well, yes, (laughs) it is a very obvious and basic point, but I think we need to feel the weight of it. 
You know, as I've thought about preaching and, and teaching, just in general, teaching anything, in fact, a lot of times it's not so much that you're telling people things they don't already know, you know? It's actually that you're trying to concentrate a time on something to try to make it stick, you know? To try to bring it out and bring it to life. And I think in the case of giving for the sake of need, that, that we really do need to be giving, we know this. None of us would say, I don't really need to give, right? We know that on paper, but do we really feel the, the weight of what needs, what needs are there and will not be met if we don't give? That's what I'm saying. So giving is necessary. Um, God does not technically need our resources, as I said. He's the one who provides for us in the first place. But even so, he's purposed to bless us um, so that we can be a blessing to others, like Abraham, right, in the Old Testament. Um, the upshot of this is that if we don't give, the needs won't be met. Good works won't be accomplished. Preaching and teaching will not be done at least the way it should be done, right? You think about uh, Act 6 with the, you know, the, the distribution of resources to the, the Hellenistic and the Jews, um, Jews and the, uh, or widows rather, and the, uh, the Jewish ones, and how you know, that seems to be the, the start of the, you know, the office of deacon, if you want to say office. Um, but the idea there is that you know, the, the, those who are teaching and preaching cannot be, I don't want to use the word trouble, that's not really the right phrase, but their resources should not be poured into serving tables, as it says, right? But preaching and teaching the word and prayer, right? And so resources allow things to happen that would not happen otherwise. And by resources, I mean material things, right? Either money or goods that we give to others, things we physically share with one another. Um, If we do not give in this way, Things that need to happen will not happen. Pressing needs will not be met. Preaching and teaching will not be done either at all or to the degree that it needs to be done. Missionaries will not be able to preach the gospel effectively. Um, you know, good works like PWC, uh, Piedmont Women's Center, uh, Crisis Pregnancy, which is, um, I mean, if there's anything we want to support right now with good works, obviously, come on, Crisis Pregnancy, as always, but what, what a time in our country, right? Um, and on and on and on we could go, but these things will not, um, these needs will not be addressed apart from our giving. It is necessary. So listen to a couple of texts in 2 Corinthians. Um, 2 Corinthians 9.12. Paul is, just brief context summary here. Paul is taking up a collection. This is, the, this is the longest text on giving, really, in the entire New Testament. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And what Paul is doing is, He's writing to the Corinthian church to remind them that they had previously committed to uh, contribute to this fund. Paul's a fundraiser. (laughs) He's raising some funds for the suffering, straggling church in Jerusalem. And he is going to collect these funds from the various churches and bring them to Jerusalem to deliver there to the saints, right? So he's, he's writing to the Corinthian church to say, remember guys, you previously committed to give this money. And he's sort of um, in a very tactful way, um, but forceful way at times, um, reminding them of their previous, previous commitment and saying, hey, keep your word, guys, you know. Um, this is something you've committed to. So he's, he's urging them to uh, supply what's needed for these saints. And so, so Paul says in 2 Corinthians nine twelve, for this ministry of this, I'm sorry, for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. So 
that phrase, fully supplying the needs of the saints, is the key thing I'm you know, putting out there for you. This, this contribution that Paul had, uh, was gathering together, and actually did finally deliver to the saints in Jerusalem, fully supplied the needs of the saints. He says a very similar thing about himself in 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 9. He says, uh, um, I did not, uh, I'm sorry, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. So Paul is a bivocational minister of the gospel, so to speak, and he does this for a specific reason. Um, He says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you, and when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. So, Note two things. Number one, real needs demand and require real action. And that phrase, fully supplied, is important as well, isn't it? It's not that the Macedonian churches who gave to Paul himself, or all the, all the churches there in Macedonia and Achaia that gave to the Jerusalem church, did so begrudgingly, just you know, scraping off just, just a little bit to give to these churches. They fully met the needs of Paul and the saints there, right? And this is, this is the nature of Christianity, that we, again, don't just regard ourselves as numero uno, we're number one, right? But we see others as, how would I like, if I had a real genuine need, would I want my need just barely met or fully met, right? Fully met, to the degree that you can, obviously. God is the one who gives this ultimately, right? God is the one who gives us anything that we have so that we can fully supply the needs and meet the needs of others. But that's the goal, isn't it, Right? to fully meet the needs of those who have genuine need, whether it's, again, widows, orphans, those who are oppressed, uh, legitimately so, and in real need, um, needs like Paul, who's a missionary and a you know, church planter, uh, elders, right? Um, which we're, we're gonna go into all that later on, but the point is fully supplying these needs. Without the collection for the saints in Jerusalem, they would not have had their needs met in the way that they were. Third, thirdly, giving is blessed. So Acts 20, 35, really interesting passage. Paul um, says, again, talking to the Ephesian elders there on the, uh, near, near the shore there, he's getting ready to, to depart. Um, and Paul says, in everything, says to them, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. To receive, so this is a, not a, uh, a. If you do a cross-reference search here, you're not going to find this statement in the Gospels, right? It's not in any of the Gospels. But Paul says these these are words of Christ. These are words of Jesus. So now we know that Jesus said more than than that's than uh, is recorded in the Gospels. What does John say at the end of his Gospel? That all the books in the world, surely being hyperbolic, but all the books in the world can't contain the deeds and and sayings of Jesus, right? All the things he did and said can't be contained, right? There's so many things that that John, should he have scroll after scroll to write more and more, could have written, but he limited himself to certain things, right? Well, there are lots of things that Jesus said that we don't have record of, and that's that's the Holy Spirit's choice. But one thing we do have here is this quotation by Paul from Jesus, where Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And you think about Jesus himself, his whole life was giving, wasn't it? What did Jesus ever receive, right? He's constantly giving, 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 giving. Not so much 
you know, I mean, Jesus, as he was an itinerant preacher, he and his disciples, they had people contributing to the money bag, right? And ironically, Judas, the, the worst of them all, <laughs> was taking care of the bag, right? But they were giving, meeting the needs. If Jesus wasn't healing somebody from their sickness, uh, they, were, they were providing, right? Providing for the needs. People were providing for Jesus and the disciples, but surely they met needs as well with that common purse. But more, more to the point is, of course, that Jesus gave his very life's blood to meet our ultimate need. So when Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to, mis- to receive, I think he knows what he's talking about as the ultimate giver, right? I've already mentioned that there's a you know, two-way blessing of giving, but Jesus makes it crystal clear. The more you give, the more you get. And this does not mean that you'll necessarily receive back in kind. You know, I don't think Jesus is saying, you know, here, as Paul's quoting it, okay, you give $10 and you're going to receive $10 back. Or you give $10, you're going to receive $20 back. Now, that's not to say that there are no texts where God will meet the needs of saints as they give resources and then they're in need. Other saints will then meet their, their needs. Okay, that happens. Those, are, those texts are there. But I think there's something more, more ultimate going on here in this text um, tied in with the word blessing. Um, you know, God will certainly take care of us in our hour of need, but it's also God's, God's blessing of his smile on us when we share his heart for the needy, you know? I mean, when you actually give in an uncoerced way, don't you feel that you've done something right before the Lord? that it was the right thing to do, you know? You, you feel that the blessing of God is on you in that action, right? That God is with you in that because God's heart is behind it. He's a giving God. When you give and you act like his son or daughter, you're doing the same as God does, giving, right? So bless, it's the blessing of knowing you've acted selflessly for the benefit of, of others, demonstrating that we're truly his disciples. It's the blessing that comes to us on the last day, as I've already mentioned from Matthew, when God rewards us for our faithful use of his resources. Right? It's all of the above. It's blessing now and it's blessing then. Right? And it's blessing in all a multitude of ways, a host of ways. I don't think we need to limit the word to just monetary blessing, um, though I think it includes that. It's, it's far beyond that. You know? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Do we really believe that? That's the question, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Um, we all, you know, we live in such a, a culture focused on receiving. You know, we, we, you ask the average person, what's your favorite, well, let's say this, the average kid, what's your favorite holiday? What is it? Christmas. Right. Why? Because we love to celebrate the birth of Christ, right? Well, hopefully, but <laughs> I think they probably like some, uh, some presents too, you know? Uh, and, we, and we all do. There's nothing wrong with receiving per se. That's not the point. The point is that disciples of Jesus, our focus should not be on getting but giving, right? When it comes down to things. The bottom line is we should be all about giving, not, uh, not receiving. All right, next, next point. Giving is pleasing to the Lord. A couple of texts we can look at here. Um, let me read, this is sort of a longer text if you want, want to turn there. Philippians chapter four, verses 10 through 20. And this is, again, I know I hate, I hate to keep saying this, but a text we'll come back to next week and look at a little bit more, a little, a little more. Um, but Paul is, Paul is writing um, the end of his letter here to the Philippian church, a, what someone has called a, a thankless thank you, which is kind of funny, like, what do you mean? Well, what, what is meant by that is that he doesn't, he doesn't actually come out and say thank you to the Philippians for um, a gift that they had given him through Epaphroditus, 
but he does in a roundabout way, but he doesn't actually formally come out and say, by the way, thank you guys. Um, and there's probably a reason he does it that way, which is again, back to the whole patron client, you know, uh, reciprocity thing I was talking about before. He doesn't want them to think that he is somehow now in, in their debt. They've done him this, uh, this good deed and now they're the patron and he's the client. No, it's, it's God who supplied this money for the Philippian church who then channeled it to Paul, right? Um, so Paul is, and Paul himself says, well, let's just read it. Uh, Paul says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. I don't know exactly what that means. Maybe they just did not have the resources at the time, but for whatever reason, they were concerned about Paul and his, his material needs and so forth, but they, they lacked opportunity to, to give. Maybe it was just storms. They couldn't get the money to him across the sea. I don't, I don't know. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of, of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. For I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a really remarkable text. It really is. Um, and again, we'll look at it more <laughs> in future. But for the, for the time being, I want to point out this statement Paul makes. He says that he's received from Epaphroditus what they've sent. And how does he regard their, their gift? Well, he regards it as a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now, where does that language comes, come from? The Old Testament, right? What book specifically do we see this terminology pop up in over and over again? Leviticus, right? Yep. So Ethan's been reading through Leviticus, and, you know, it's, I, I mean, we all know. Leviticus is not easy, right? It's one of those books you start reading, you're like, I don't know how to do this. How am I going to make it to chapter 27? You know, it's kind of a, a marathon. But then you, you see a text like this, and it just brings it out, doesn't it? You see why you read Leviticus was so you could see a text like this and realize, hey, there's a, there, are, there, are, there are bigger points on the horizon ahead than just the Levitical system as it stood. It's um, that there's still ongoing sacrifices by the people of God. We have the one sacrifice, the sacrifice of atonement that deals with our sin, but that's not the only way that, that doesn't exhaust the sacrificial language of the Old Testament and its fulfillment in the New Testament, does it? It's also like this, that when we give materially to meet the needs of others, whatever they may be that are appropriate needs, then that giving is an act of worship to God. It's a fragrant aroma to God. It's a well, it's a well uh, I'm sorry, a well-pleasing, it's well-pleasing to God, an acceptable sacrifice. Um, it goes up into his nostrils, as it were. This is what it says in one of the texts in Leviticus. The priest shall take up from the grain offering its memorial portion and shall offer it up in smoke on the altar as an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to Yahweh. 
this is a soothing aroma to God when we give to meet the needs of, of saints, in this case, Paul himself, right? It's a soothing aroma to God. Every Christian wants to please God, right? Don't you, probably every day, if not every other day, kind of do a mental checklist, am I pleasing God in my life right now or today? I'm assuming all Christians do that pretty much every day, right? In some form or fashion. But sometimes it's sort of hard to know as you evaluate yourself how to answer that question, isn't it? To sort of get the, the reading on yourself if you're pleasing God or not. And I think sometimes the reason that it's difficult for us is because our heart's deceptive, number one, but number two is we've sort of spiritualized it a bit. It's things like this that God wants us to think about. Well, are we giving of our resources to help others? That's one way we can know that we're pleasing God, right? That's a very concrete way on the checklist. You see, hey, I'm, yeah, okay, I am giving some of my resources to, to help others. I am doing that. Now, maybe you could say I could do more. Or I feel like I, you know, I need to cut this or that and you know, alter the budget, whatever the case. But at the bottom line, it's a, it's a clear way of knowing that when your money leaves your hand and goes to either through the church or directly to others for meeting needs, that that meeting of a need is a thing that's pleasing to the Lord, well-pleasing to the Lord, a, a, a fragrant aroma in his nostrils, <laughs> so to speak, right? Um, <clears throat> so, pleasing the Lord, giving is pleasing to the Lord. Another text, just one more text on this point of pleasing the Lord is Hebrews 6, uh, 13, 16. I'll just read it, you don't have to turn there. The writer of Hebrews says, and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Again, it doesn't take much to please the Lord, right? Doing good and sharing. It doesn't say go over into Africa and make you know, converts. Those are, that's a great thing to do. But it's doing good and sharing. It's as simple as, hey, this person has, is a little short on their, their food budget this, this month. I'm going to help them out. I'm going to invite them over for a meal, give them, buy them groceries, whatever. I mean, Doing good and sharing. It's a concrete act, a tangible act that is pleasing to the Lord. Um, so this is an obvious way we can sort of, an obvious question, a basic question we can pose to ourselves. Am I doing good and sharing? If the answer is yes, again, we can always qualify and say, I could do more, I could do this and that change. But basically, if the answer is yes, in that respect, you're pleasing to the Lord. Right? Let's not, overly, let's not make it overly complicated. <laughs> Right? All right, uh, another reason that we should be giving is that giving results in thanksgiving to God. So I'll read 2 Corinthians 9, 10 through 11. Back to 2 Corinthians, there's a lot of stuff there in chapters 8 and 9. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberalities. There's that idea of everything we have comes from God and it comes, it comes from God with a purpose that it would meet our needs and then we would have an abundance to meet the needs of others. It overflows into liberality, right? Which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So this, this giving to meet the needs of, in this context, the church in Jerusalem and in Judea and the area there is to produce What? Thanksgiving to God. Well, what is Thanksgiving? It's a form of worship, isn't it? Right? When we give thanks to God, we are worshiping God. It's worship. It's honoring God. It's a big deal in the scriptures to give thanks. Think about Romans chapter one. It says about the pagan world, they neither honored him as God or gave thanks. 
That's, they don't do that, you know? The only people who are going to give thanks to God are Christians. <laughs> people who really, sincerely understand that the things we have come from God. That everything we have, we've received. We are dependent creatures. We are not self-sufficient or self-sustaining. And as great as capitalism is, and I'm not gonna begin to downgrade capitalism or, or talk down as a system because it's the most beneficial economic system in the history of the world as far as I can tell, but there is a, an undercurrent in capitalism, as we all know, of pulling yourself up by your bootstrap. It can be there at least, you know, of I'm a self-made man, right? I contributed to my great success or wealth or whatever it is. We can easily do that, you know, and, you know, and, and come to really believe that. And this is why in Proverbs, um, chapter 30, I think it is, Agar says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Why does he say, don't give me poverty? Well, so that I don't steal, right? Go out and have to steal, and then, well, that's not good, right? Or if I'm rich, then I come to think, well, you know, this God, I don't really need him, do I? I, I don't really have any needs. I mean, why do I need God? All my needs are met. Who's God, right? All the opulence and grandeur of a nation like Egypt or Babylon, the Hanging Gardens, or Assyria, Actually, footnote on that. I think Assyria actually had the Hanging Gardens from what I read historically fairly recently. That's neither here nor there, but whatever. <laughs> the opulence of all these nations. Rome, you know? Think about Pharaoh's response when this shepherd comes to him into the court of Pharaoh. Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him or obey his voice, right? Who is this Yahweh? He's a nobody God. Look at our gods. They're all around here. We've got, you know, Ra over here. We've got, you know, Isis over there. These are gods, right? These are the gods worth worshiping. Well, no, <laughs> they're just idols, they're just stone. They're demonic, actually, in, in their true nature, right? Demons behind them. But God is the one who made the heavens and the earth, and because he made the heavens and the earth, he can provide all of our needs, right? And when he does provide everything we have for all of our needs, we should do what in response? Give thanks, right, to God, regularly. Um, Paul also says... Um, well, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that for that. That's pretty straightforward. That there are many more texts we could look at, but giving him thanks is, is a key way that we worship the Lord. So in this text in 2 Corinthians, Paul is saying, hey, when you churches in Macedonia and Achaia, when you give money, the result ultimately from the church in Jerusalem is they give thanks. They're, they're almost starving to death. And when they receive money from these churches, they're thankful to God for you and your sacrifice, right? That they've been provided for. It's hard to relate, isn't it? Really, have any of you ever really been hungry? I mean, maybe, maybe some of you have. I'm not gonna say no one has, but really, really, really been hungry to the point where you think, I'm not gonna make it another, another day if someone doesn't meet my need. I've never been that way, not one day in my life. I'm, I'm assuming that's the case for most of us here, right? So it's, it's hard to relate. Can you imagine if you're borderline starving to death, like these churches in Jerusalem are probably on their way toward, you know, that you would be giving thanks to God because of these churches, right? Who gave, not from their surplus necessarily, some of them even in Macedonia gave out of their poverty. It says their extreme poverty they gave. Thanksgiving. <clears throat> Another reason, I told you I had like nine of these, so bear with me. <laughs> Another reason we should be giving 
is that giving demonstrates the love of Christ to fellow Christians and the world. So just a couple of texts here. Again, there are many texts we could look at, um, but just a couple. 1 John 3, you can turn there if you'd like. It's just a couple of verses, but if you want to put your eyes on it. 1 John 3, verse 17 Now, 1 John 3, 17 says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Again, just as Christians want to, want to please God and want to see God honored and worshiped through thanksgiving, so we want to manifest the love of God, right? Because why? <laughs> the love of God has been poured out into our hearts, as Paul says, right? So if God's love has been poured out into our hearts, John's saying, if you then have a brother or sister in need, and you see that need, and you have the ability to meet that need, and then your reaction is to close your heart and not provide for that need, how can the love of God be in you, Right? You're saying God has poured out, he's, he's lavished his love on us in Christ, and yet we're going to close our heart to brothers and sisters in need? In need? That is not the love of God manifested, right? But on the flip side, when we do show the love of Christ, right, by opening our hearts and not closing our hearts to those in need, we are demonstrating that this love is not just a platitude, right? It's not just mere talk or chatter. Just yesterday at a swim meet, this lady had on a shirt, rainbow stripes, we all know what that means these days, love is the answer, right? So we all know what that really means. I don't need to demystify that for you. It's pretty clear, right? Love, everybody talks about love. Everybody wants to be loving, so they say, right? But what is love, right? Love is a demonstration. It's not just talk, right? And in John here, he's saying when we love, it ought to be not just in talk, mere words, but in deed and tr- in truth. But in deed and truth, he says, not with just word or tongue. So the love of Christ is demonstrated to other brothers and sisters when it's, manif- when it's manifested in tangible expressions for those in need. I thought about the word mercy. You know, mercy is, is this idea of you see, you see someone who's, who has a need or is in a bad way, right? And you feel badly about it. And then you act. That's mercy. So we hear a lot of talk about mercy ministries, but that's what it is. It's um, the hymn says, full of pity, joined with power, right? Full of pity, joined with, that's God. God is, God looks at us in our state of being enemies and wretched and squirming around in our own blood, like it says in Ezekiel, and he has pity on us and saves us with his own outstretched arm, right? With power. That's mercy. So that's what, that's what we're getting at here with Christians and seeing need, is that when we, when we see someone it's not an, who has need and we have the ability to help them, mercy is not completed until the action is performed where you meet that need if you can, right? Now, obviously, if you can't meet the need, then you can't meet the need. But if you can meet the need, then that's showing mercy, right? It's, it's 
Pity joined with power, pity joined with action. Secondly, we not only demonstrate the love of Christ to fellow Christians, but we demonstrate the love of Christ to the world um, through our giving. So 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, Peter, uh, Peter, <laughs> Chris preached on this recently in Sunday school as he's been going through uh, 1 Peter, so I won't spend a lot of time on it, but um, this is what it says. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, Chris argued, I think rightly, unless I'm remembering incorrectly, correct me if I'm wrong, that day of visitation here is, this glorifying God in the day of visitation is probably not they'll glorify God in the sense that um, God's justice will be seen to be done as he's pouring out wrath on sinners. Now, is that true? Yes, it is true. On the day of judgment, when God pours out his righteous wrath, it's going to glorify God. God will be glorified in his salvation of sinners and his judgment over those who were unrepentant of sin on that day, right? But that, I don't think that's what's going on here. And I, I think Chris <laughs> made the same argument that it's, it's, it's more than likely that, as Jesus says, that you should let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and they glorify God, your Father who is in heaven. And here's, in this text, is God on the day of visitation, when God comes to do two things, judge, judge and save, right? It's gonna be a, a dual purpose when he visits, so to speak. Um, so, the thing that stands out to me here is that these good deeds, you know, the Greco-Roman world, as, as Peter says here, the Greco-Roman world isn't so happy with Christians for some things, are they? They misunderstand some aspects of Christian practice, like, okay, what is this Lord's Supper? Are you, are you cannibalizing people in there? What is this? Why are you talking about eating body and blood? And what is this brother and sister business? Is this incest? What's, what are you guys all about? So there's, you know, stuff that, things that Christians do as just normal Christian practice that the world's going to misunderstand and, and speak evil of your good, right? So there is that aspect of things. But there's an aspect of, so there's not full overlap between the ethics of Christians and the ethics of the world. But there is some overlap, isn't there? Right, a considerable overlap. I mean, every society says it's wrong to murder, for example, right? You don't come to a society that says, yeah, murder is okay, it's great, go, go kill who you want to. Now, they may draw the lines differently as to who gets killed and what's called murder and what's not called murder, but nonetheless, the point is this, that Christians are to live in such a way that as they, as they are interacting with the pagan world there, they're doing such good <laughs> to, their, to fellow Christians and to their pagan neighbors that the pagans will begin to see this is, not just, this is not just a philosophy. It's not just another mystery religion. It's not just Stoic or Epicurean philosophy or you know, proto-Gnosticism. This is, there's something to this Christianity thing, right? And this is exactly how it unfolded in history, right? Christians were known for being generous, for caring for those who were destitute, for caring for those who were rejected by society, for elevating those who were considered nothings to a level that was equal with everyone else, right? Women, children, slaves, etc. And the way that they treated them is with love and dignity and respect. Um, and these good deeds 
as they're observed, uh, will lead to the gospel being commended to, to people, correct? <laughs> it's no less true today. You know, if, if, you, if you go to the doctor and you're sitting in the waiting room for like an eternity, like I have to do when I go to the doctor usually, um, you wonder if the doctor's ever coming in to see you, and you, you're waiting for, let's say, an hour, and the doctor comes in and he has on flip-flops and like a Hawaiian shirt or whatever. You're like, I don't, I don't know about this. <laughs> What's this doctor all about? But the doctor may be like the best one in the world, right? He might be some specialist and have all the accreditations that you would be looking for in a doctor, right? But he's just not looking that way. He's not coming across in the right way. That's not a perfect analogy, but... The, the attire of the doctor commends himself when he comes in with the, the white coat and, you know, the stethoscope around his neck and yada, yada, all the stuff, you know. He commends himself to you in such a way that you think, this guy's legit, right? He, he's a legit doctor. He knows his stuff. Now, he could, he could have the white coat and be totally illegitimate. I mean, it could be a charlatan for all you know. But the point is that when good deeds are present alongside the gospel, the good deeds are not the gospel. I don't want to, you know, being misinterpreted, good deeds are not the gospel. The gospel is a message, right, that we give people. And the message itself can save people, just the bare message. But the deeds that come along with the proclamation of the gospel as we live our lives among the world commends the gospels, veracity, and truth, the truthfulness of it, the significance of it to people. But this is not just mere talk, right? It's a real message of, of, that has effects, you know? It has effects in the world in individuals, in relationships, in the very, of course, preeminently, in our relationship with the Lord himself, right? Glorifying God in the day of visitation. These good deeds aren't just personal holiness. After all, the pagan, pagan's world's, pagan world had values that somewhat, you know, whatever overlap, but not completely, but their deeds, like I said, that in, impressed the pagan world by Christian's love and care for one another and, outside, and outsiders. So how, can, how we give of ourselves and our resources really can help people see that this is not a vapid, empty message. It comes with power that changes the way we live and regard others. Two more things very quickly, and we will wrap it up for this morning. Uh, giving is the ultimate savings program. Well, that sounds weird, doesn't it? Giving is the ultimate savings program. Matthew chapter 6 very common, popular verse talked about. Do not, store up your, uh, do, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus' logic here is plain and it's straightforward and it's super challenging, isn't it? It's not hard to understand, per se. It's just really challenging because it requires a reorientation of our values. It requires us to see this world as, this is not, a, we don't have here a lasting city, right? This is not a lasting city. This world is passing away. Now again, we all know this. As Christians, we believe this, right? On, on paper. But the way that we give will reflect how, the degree to which we really believe that, right? Do we really believe that we have here no lasting city? That, you know, the elements will burn with intense heat, 
that this world is passing away, that the things of the world, the, 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 the things that we could possibly store up in the world that we could have used to benefit others that we have a surplus of are just going away. They're not going to last, right? But yet, Jesus says on the flip side, storing up treasures in heaven is the ultimate savings plan in the sense that you do have their lasting city, a permanent, thi- a permanent arrangement, right? So what's the wise thing to do, right? Just clear logic. The wise thing to do is to put your money in a place that's safe, right? Don't put your money in the bank that has like wooden doors like the old west or something, you know? <laughs> put, your, put your money where there's the big vault with the, the huge, I don't, I don't know what vaults look like anymore. I guess they have electronic. I haven't been in a bank in like 10 years. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day about banks. Like, why are there so many banks? I haven't been in a bank, a physical bank in like 10 years, you know? But anyways, maybe they have different vaults uh, in the banks now, but whatever the case. Um, you want to put your money in a place that's, that's safe, so to speak. Um, Jesus isn't against saving money per se, and we'll say more about that next week, but he is against an attitude whereby we view our wealth and goods as a stronghold that we put our trust in instead of God. So here's a proverb for you. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his own imagination. Interesting, right? So then there's another proverb that says, a rich man's wealth is his fortress, the ruin of the poor is their poverty. So that has kind of a different flavor to it. But here in this, this particular proverb, 1811, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. So he regards his wealth as putting him in a place of security, right? He's built up this stronghold around him, right? But the reality is, that's not true. <laughs> wealth can never be an ultimate security, right? The minute you fix your eyes on it, it takes wings and flies to heaven, Another place in Proverbs says, right? Wealth is not a permanent thing. We should learn this through world history, right? There was a stock market crash at one point, right? Not that long ago. Um, so how, how secure is, is wealth? How secure are possessions? Not very, right? Not very. But Jesus says, ironically, when we store up by giving away, <laughs> that we actually are storing up in such a way that those treasures last, right? They're not going anywhere. They're permanently secure. Now, I don't know all that is implied, to be honest, with storing up treasures in heaven, how that works out. I know one thing is this, that it's not this ephemeral existence in the world to come where we're floating around, right? It's this tangible earth that's gonna be renovated, isn't it? Yep, a new heaven's a new earth. So I don't know how it all works out with storing treasures up as far as what that means, what it will look like, but it sounds pretty good to me to have permanent treasures, whatever that is, from God himself to you because you denied yourself in this present evil age for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, for the sake of saints, for the sake of the world, right? One other text in this regard, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, very similar um, idea, actually, I think Paul is definitely alluding back to Jesus here. Instruct those who are rich in this present world, so you can be rich and be a Christian, that's not the actual problem, it's what you do with your riches. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. You hear the idea there, to fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. 
So, you know, again, I'll, I keep saying this. I'll say more later. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to stick to the <laughs> script here and what I'm trying to get across this morning. But, you know, part, part of the reason that God gives us things, money, possessions, is to enjoy them. We don't want to minimize that. You should not beat yourself up and be ascetic about the things you have. It's just not the only reason that God gives us wealth or even the primary reason. You see what I'm saying? It's not to say you can't go on vacation or you can't go to a movie or you can't go eat eat ice cream. I hope those things are not wrong because I just did all those things very recently. (laughs) Um, But anyways, you know, the point is, uh, what is our attitude toward riches and what do we do in respect to others? So to read on, uh, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works. Them is the rich, of course to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Right? So Paul's point is, if the rich set themselves, set their bar uh, on this present age and riches here, it's way too low. You're not taking hold of that which is life indeed. Life indeed is to come, right? It's not now, Right? Life indeed is to come, the future. Treasure of a good foundation for the future. By doing what? By doing good, being rich in good works, and being generous and ready to share. That's how we know that that's what Jesus means when he talks about storing up treasures in heaven, meaning giving away, right? <laughs> giving. That's how you store up treasure, treasures in heaven. Um, one more point, last point on my list here as to why we should give. And this is really the most significant thing, honestly, is because we have received. That's, that's why we should give, because we've received. Gospel of John, chapter one, verse 16. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Interesting text. The Greek is really weird, actually. Grace instead of grace. What does that mean? There are lots of different discussions in the scholarly world about what it means, but I think it means a heaping helping of grace, (laughs) to put it in Southern terms, right? A lot of grace, grace on top of grace. Uh, Here's grace, I'm gonna give you some more, right? God's grace is not stingy. Uh, When we've received from God, he didn't just barely meet our need, he (laughs) went above and beyond, right? Sometimes, you know, sometimes you hear people talk about um, how the medieval church use economic language for salvation, how that was so wrong, you know. And, and they did and go in wrong directions like treasury of merit built up, all the good de- deeds of the saints, they accrued to our benefit, we can tap into those and so forth, that's all wrong. But does the Bible use economic language for salvation? Yes. <laughs> forgive us our debts, Jesus says, as we forgive our debtors, right? That's economic language, for example. Um, it's one of the many images that the scriptures puts out there to help us grapple with our, um, our need, how, how radically bad off we are pre-Christ and what he's done for us post-Christ, right? When we come to know the Lord. 
You know, it's also estrangement and reconciliation, that relational language or imagery that's used. The Bible comes at this in all sorts of ways, but we have received from God grace instead of grace, grace upon grace. He has more than covered our debt, and out of love, what should we do? We should help others, right? You remember the parable that Jesus tells about the guy who was forgiven, you know, it's, what is it, like 200 years of debt. I can't remember. I always forget the amount of money that uh, was mentioned there, but it's a colossal, it's an unbelievable amount of money, you know, and, and he's forgiven, and he turns around and holds this other guy accountable for just a, just a little bit of money, right? It's like, mm-mm, that's not how it's supposed to work with believers. We're supposed to see the magnitude, realize the magnitude of God's grace toward us and be shaped by that and molded into people who will willingly give to others at the drop of a hat, Right? Without, I'm not saying give unwisely, but what I am saying is that we should, we should be ready to give without having to do a lot of theological gymnastics in our own minds as to how to do it or what. You know what I'm saying? It, it should just be our heart's intention. And it's a difficult thing, brothers and sisters, because we live in such an affluent, materialistic society and age. It's very difficult. We all know this. And that's part of the reason we need to continue to go over these texts, right? Because we need more than probably any other place in the world to be shaped by these texts, right? Um, But again, just wrapping up, I know it's 1236. um, What I want you to take away this morning is that there are lots of reasons, I'm sure more could be added, for why we should be giving. And they're all positive, aren't they? They're all positive. To the good of saints, for the good of the world, for the good of the lost, for the good of babies who are in the womb, for the you know, good works, for the glory of the Lord, right? And we do so because we have received grace upon grace. So why don't we pray, and uh, we'll continue on next week. Lord, uh, we thank you as, <clears throat> as Paul uh, finished his section in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Lord, we, like he did, we thank you for your indescribable gift, Lord, that you've given um, more than we could ever possibly imagine in giving your son for the life of, uh, for the, life of, of the world, Lord, that, or for the sins of the world, Lord, that he gave his life for us um, so that we can be reconciled to you, so that we can have our sins fully, our sin debt fully can- canceled and be uh, drawn into fellowship with you. And Lord, we ask you to um, just mold our hearts and shape our hearts into people who are uh, generous givers, who have a heart for you and compassion for Uh, for the lost and for fellow brothers and sisters who have real pressing needs. Um, Lord, give us wisdom. We don't always know, Lord, how to to go about this sometimes, Lord. It's not always easy um, to know exactly how much or where to give, Lord. Um, That's why we need to to be in conversation with one another and help each other in this respect. But Lord, we need wisdom from you above all. Um, Lord, we don't want to um, waste our resources that you've given us, Lord. And um, Lord, just help us to be others oriented as you are, Lord, more and more, we pray. And uh, Lord, we just again thank you for your great grace toward us in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.